Welcome to the podcast. For months, we've been debating how schools should resume this fall, in person, remote, or some hybrid version of the two. Governor Charlie Baker has insisted most communities should go with some form of in-person learning. While teachers unions have been adamant that remote learning is the only safe way to go. Now, with school about to start, we're finally beginning to talk about the nuts and bolts of what school will actually look like this fall. I'm Bruce Mole of Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined by two parents who have recently written opinion pieces on this issue. Jack Chang is the father of two teenagers from Newton who teaches adults at the Clemente course in the humanities in Dorchester. And Carrie Rodriguez is a Somerville mother of three sons who is the founder and CEO of Massachusetts Parents United. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Carrie, can you set the stage for us a little bit? Give us a sense of what's going on right now at school systems across the state. Well, from the parent perspective, this has been a really long summer. And frankly, a lot of us have had to scramble to figure out how to keep our kids occupied pretty much on our own. So we kind of are coming back to school hoping that there's been extensive planning from a student perspective and a family perspective to really provide us with support um, some really specific ideas about what remote instruction is going to look like. And frankly, we're a little bit nervous because from where we sit, there are still a lot of broad generalities being presented about planning to plan and not a lot of specificity around what this is going to really look like from the child perspective. Uh, I'll tell you what it looks like for me as a Somerville parent of three little boys. And my kids are going into second grade, third grade, and seventh grade. Um, so we've got a couple of Chromebooks. Uh, last night and you know, today that we're recording, it's, it's the very first week of September. Um, our school is starting two weeks from today. Uh, last night there was kind of a a synopsis of what school might look like, but it's still very general, about two to three hours of instruction and school time, but really no schedule, uh, no information about really what time spent on learning is going to look like, um, some broad generalities around morning meeting and us all doing kind of a check-in to see how we're feeling, but not really a lot of information about what my kids are gonna be learning, literally during the remote learning section of the day, um, what the expectations are going to be on not just them, but me as a parent to facilitate this remote learning. So once again, it feels like there's a lot of chaos. There are not really any specific plans. And frankly, two weeks out, I've got to know what home is going to look like, what work is going to look like. It's a lot for parents and families right now. Jack, what are you seeing in Newton? People are um, very engaged, let's put it that way. Uh, a recent school committee meeting that was online had 2,000 uh, visitors, usually you know, less than a dozen people show up at school committee meetings. So it's the talk of the town, it's what everyone talks about you know, on the street, all the neighbors are talking about it, on the blogs, it's, and there's a lot of conflicting information like Carrie, there's just a, a lack of information. And so everyone is speculating. There's a lot of rumors. My kids are both high schoolers. And um, yeah, they don't know what 
school's going to be like, and they're frustrated. So um, maybe Carrie, go back to you for this one. Um, what, as, a, as someone who you both have sort of grappled with what this should look like, um, what is it, what did it look like at the end of last year? And, and what do you think it should look like at the beginning of this year? So for us, the spring was a disaster. Um, my middle child, who was in second grade at the time, uh, his teacher just disappeared for about six weeks. We didn't hear from her. There was no engagement on Google Classroom. It wasn't until I sent an email to the principal of the school saying, hey, Miles hasn't heard from his teacher that we got a substitute teacher, and then suddenly the teacher reappeared. And then at the end of the year, it just kind of petered out. And I was sent home this report card that gave my Miles the lowest grade he's ever received in his entire academic career. It was so bad, I didn't even show him the report card because it would have so undermined his confidence and his identity as a smart kid um, that I thought it would, it would have actually done him harm. So honestly, what we saw is this slow petering out and then the beginning of June, it was just kind of a hands off, like we're done. We didn't even get summer reading lists this year. Like there was no guidance. It was just like, okay, we're not doing, you're not going to hear from us for a couple of months. We're going to go, frankly, figure out how to try to wrap your kid in plastic. Um, and everybody went from being an education expert to trying to be an infectious disease expert. It wasn't working out. So instead of doubling down on the expertise they have as educators to try to make remote learning worth doing, it seems like they wasted a lot of time. And I'll tell you what we did. Um, you know, my children had the opportunity to go to freedom school uh, yeah. for free, you know, black and brown teachers, black and brown kids. It was transformative. They did a lot of remote learning with this, this group from Philadelphia, the, the Center for Black Educator Development. And my youngest, who was a first grader now going into second grade, went up five reading levels. So remote learning is possible. It can be done if you're going to double down on trying to make it work. But what we're seeing in terms of like now returning to school, like I'm not hearing about how you're going to assess how our kids are and, and how they should be grouped and what learning loss has occurred or not occurred. Uh, I'm not hearing about like what the actual academic instruction is going to look like. It's a lot of this deficit mindset around our kids are so broken. They've gone through this tra traumatic experience. They're never going to be capable of learning. And you've just got to give us grace and, and we don't know what we're doing. Like we're the adults in the situation and these are the educators. They're supposed to be capable of figuring this stuff out and the grace period is over. Jack, how about in, in Newton and, and sort of how did it end last year and Talk a little bit about this is what your sort of focus has been, what it should maybe look like as we head into the fall. Yeah, so um, at the end of last year, it's similar to what Carrie was describing, stuff just kind of dribbled out. You know, there's um, a couple of teachers that my kids had who continued to give them significant work and asked ask for, you know, writing and reading to be done. My, my daughter said that history was the only class that she felt like she finished. Um, and I'll tell you, you mentioned that I, I teach an adult ed program in Dorchester. A lot of our students didn't have laptops. So I totally understand that there, it was hard to continue. And, and we felt that in my program, felt that in the local schools. But, uh, you know, to take Carrie's point about the freedom schools, 
it seems like there's a chance now to sort of reinvent what the school's going to be. And I think one major problem that everyone had was everyone kind of was hoping this would all be over. I mean, it's natural. It's all wishful thinking. But if, if we had really, you know, bet money on it in June, I would have bet that it's going to be remote all year long. And lots of schools are saying that they're going to reassess. Maybe they'll go from remote to hybrid. That even, I, I don't believe that's going to happen. So let's make it the best remote learning possible. Um, let's have some activities at school where, where kids can do socially distanced socializing, you know, arts programs, uh, make giant sidewalk murals, you know, with arts classes, have photography teachers teach kids how to make the best selfies, have er environmental studies teachers take the kids through the woods, um, get the PE teachers just to get kids jogging around the track or whatever. And mix that up with great Zoom learning. My, my son took a, a, a summer class over Zoom and I asked him what the best part was and he said they got great guest lecturers. That's the great thing about Zoom. You could get someone from Australia who's a specialist in whatever, lizards, and have them t t talk in your biology class. So I think there, there's, um, what I see missing is that sense of creativity and just exploring how far we can go with this new model that we've got. So your model uh, or your chalk of thinking outside the box involves some in-person activities during the week, as well as, as a lot, it sort of sounds like the core education requirements might be by Zoom concentrated during a couple days of the week or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not an education expert, but I, I, I do sort of feel like, you know, I understand we need a certain number of hours of math to understand math. I mean, I certainly do. But, um, but so much of learning is this social deve developmental part of it. Um, I am glad that our guidance counselors are, are I, I hear them emphasizing um, that they're looking for signs of depression, that they're, they realize that, you know, for my kids, 16, 17 year old kids, they should not be at home all the time. They're, I mean, this is the time they should be hanging out with their friends and exploring the world and so, um, yeah, I, I do think we do have to have some sort of model. The hybrid model is crazy. I was texting with someone earlier today, and they said, um, she put it this way, her son is in a hybrid, will be in a hybrid model. He'll be going to school for eight half days a month. When you put it that way, like, that's nothing. That's, it's, yeah, so crazy. <laughs> And frankly, a lot of parents are not interested in rolling the dice. I mean, going back to the Boston example, we have buildings that are not even, you know, stocked with, run, you know, toilet paper. There's yeah. no running water. You can't drink from the water fountains there. You know, we, we went, we just went through a two year battle trying to fight for breakfast after the bell and, and put an, a basket of apples in the classroom. And we're told that, you know, our, our schools are filled with rats. And so we, we can't even, you know, we can't even have food in the classroom because the buildings are just so terrible. But now the expectation is that we're going to keep kids safe from a deadly virus. And, and, you know, again, I go back to the, the fact that educators should be able to pivot within their area of expertise. Remote learning is possible. It is 
possible to do it at, in a high quality way so that you're reaching kids and you're keeping them engaged. But it's, this has become so highly politicized that now it, it's become a standoff. We must keep the schools closed. We cannot have high quality remote learning because it's just so hard to do. You know, we've injected politics into the situation and kept families and community out of it. So in the end, we're, the, the, the kids are actually lost in the shuffle here. So I'm curious for the both of you, um, it, you both are nervous about this new school year and, and what could be coming. Um, so I've read, uh, my son is out of school and, in, and beyond college now, so I, this is a little bit beyond me, but I, I've read a lot of parents are struggling with maybe stepping outside the school system and you know, either bringing in a teacher to work with a small group of students who might get together in person or maybe not. Uh, in other words, sort of parents are maybe freelancing. It's often shorthanded with pods, setting up pods. Has this crossed your mind and, and how do you feel about that? So this is actually something that we're doing in our own home. So we will have six kids uh, from three families, uh, one white, one Latino, one low income, uh, four IEPs. We have hired a special ed paraprofessional to help run and facilitate our remote learning with the district. We're also layering in some additional um, curriculum that we have curated ourselves. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we're doing that and made that decision in July because families cannot live in a state of uncertainty. Again, I am two weeks away from the first day of school in Somerville. I still don't have a specific hour by hour schedule around what remote learning is going to look like when my child is expected to be on Zoom. I don't even know who my kids' teachers are going to be. And frankly, they don't know my kids either. I just spent six months with my children. I have a lot of information I'd like to tell their teachers about who they are and how they learn and what they're capable of. And there has not been any communication with me and frankly, very limited communication around what this is really going to look like when it gets down to brass tacks. So if you think that families and, and frankly our communities live in a state where you know policymakers and educators can just come up with a schedule and then two days later we're gonna hop to, that's not the way our families work. That's not the way life is. We, uh, most of the folks that we work with are, are essential workers. You know, they have a, a schedule that requires them to be outside the home and doing the critical functions that keep our economy going right now. So the idea that suddenly you're just gonna throw a policy at them or throw a schedule at them and they're gonna be able to jump, it's not gonna work. This idea of pandemic pods though, and the idea that resource sharing is, is something that's new, um, kind of makes us laugh a little bit because resource sharing is how poor black and brown folks have survived in pre-COVID times. Uh, we're gonna do what we need to do for our kids, but the idea, I mean, it's just, it's the arrogance that, you know, we don't have to tell you what this is gonna look like or what you should expect, just be ready to expect it. Like, it's, it's crazy. Jack, how about you? Yeah, so um, I'll just jump on a couple things that Carrie said. Um, we also don't have our schedules yet, but high school is obviously a lot different and the scheduling is a lot crazier because it's not just uh, blocked out. And so it's a little bit more understandable. I do have one plea for any uh, high school superintendents out there. 
it seems like this an easy win. The one win we could do is we could start high school times later. Everyone knows that the psychologists, all the child developmental psychologists tell us high schools should not start before 8.30. If it's on Zoom, if no one's going to the school anyway, there's no sports teams to schedule, let's just start school at nine and just be done with it. So that's one thing. The second thing you're asking about pods, um, I'm at the point where I, there's a couple things that I know that I could help my kids with, but um, math, science, they're beyond me. So uh, we are looking at pods, but at, at a social level for our kids. We're not looking to bring in any teachers or anything, but I can't imagine them sitting alone or with their one sibling for another six months. So we're asking them to try and, uh, you know, set up an immunity pod with another family so that they could have a friend who they can at least sit at the same table with and study with, even if they're doing different classes at the same time. Hmm. And Kara, you have a, a younger child. Um, the governor has made a, a point of saying that younger children in kindergarten through third grade maybe really need hands-on in-person learning. That was his big pitch uh, for why if anyone needs to go back, that's who needs to go back. What do you think of that? Is you, you said your youngest is a set going into the second grade, so you're right in that in that ballpark. Yeah, I've got a second and a third grader here. Oh. Um, I, I guess you know it, I, I understand it, and on its face, if you don't have any additional context, it kind of makes sense, maybe. But the fact of the matter is, is like we live intergenerationally. You know, Abuelita is right upstairs, and so we care about her and we don't want her to get COVID, you know? And so while I'm fairly certain that if I sent my second and third grader into school, even if they got COVID, they would be okay. Um, the idea that we, I don't know, would stop living intergenerationally, like it just, it, it excludes like any other context. So like, these are not things that we can deal with in, in little silos. And we've got to understand the context of families. And that's why it is so absurd that we approach this conversation with the arrogance that we can just uh, operate in this way that we're just going to implement a policy and you're going to deal with it. And I want to go back to just something that Jack was saying about the fact that parents are really engaged in this moment. Um, frankly, this is all playing out in our living rooms. So now we're seeing directly how much academic instruction is happening, how much information and interaction our kids are having with teachers. Um, we are more engaged now than ever by necessity. So that's not toothpaste you can put back in the tube very easily. Uh, we now know there are options. If we had had this conversation a year ago, uh, we would be talking about how the majority of these systems don't think we should have any choice, any options, that you know the system knows what's best for my children. Now, all of the opportunities and choice are at our feet. And we're being told that only we know what's best if, in terms of signing up for in-person or hybrid or remote learning. Only we know what's best for our children. Only we know what's best for our families. Well, we're here to tell you, we have always known what's best for our children. We have always been experts in that. And the fact that we're not authentically engaged um, in, in co-collaboration and, and creation of these things is, is insane. People are not going to stand for this. So, Jack, the, the mere fact that you wrote an op-ed for Commonwealth uh, sort of suggests that 
you you were searching for an outlet to sort of share your concerns about this. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, I I, I sent it to a friend. I said I, I was just ranting on the page for an hour, and would you read it? And am I insane? And he said, Oh no, this is kind of interesting. You might want to send it out to people. So th so that that was the origin of, of my essay. I mean, it really is you know came from my frustration, but. It, it, you know, you mentioned the in-school learning. I just happened to run into a neighbor who said that her son has an IEP in, at the high school level. So he uh, is um, promised some in-school instruction. And she said what that means is they're going to set him up with his laptop in the school library or cafeteria. And he'll Zoom with teachers who may actually be in the school, but it's still going to be remote. It's, so it's it's all kind of absurd. It feels like people haven't really thought through, like, what is it? That kid might be better off at home. Like, what, what sort of concession is that to have him Zoom from school to school? It's, it's very mm. odd. And, and I feel like, um, I know it's very, I, I mean, I have the utmost respect for the people on school committees, superintendents, and the teachers. It's going to be hard, but it feels like you know, there's lots of nooks and crannies that haven't been explored and people are not really being creative in their uh, pedagogy, but also just creative in their empathy and thinking about what, what a given situation will mean for, for different kids. And is the technology, do you guys feel that the technology is available there to do remote learning or are we behind in that area as well? Uh, I think we are behind in that area and intentionally so. If we go back in our education policy history, back to 1993, when I wasn't even in, at a high school yet, um, you know, it has been intentional, our lack of evolution when it comes to ed tech um, and embracing innovation and education. All of that was intentional and part of a political play where you have special interest groups that are really concerned about how it would impact you know, teachers union membership. And, you know, they're very comfortable in a status quo that works very well for the adults who run the system. It's not focused on what's best for the, for the children and outcomes for kids. And that's why we always end up locking horns because it's, it's what political faction is gonna win out. And we know which ones always went out. There's a reason why we were ill-prepared for this moment. And when we have time to reflect on that, we should think deeply about it and then maybe change course. But the fact of the matter is I've seen it for myself, uh, folks that kind of operate outside of the status quo. Again, I'm going to freedom schools here. And Sharif el Meki, the Center for Black Educator Development, it is possible to do this. There are so many people who do remote learning well. Frankly, the districts are hiring those people to come in and facilitate the remote learning here in Somerville. They're, they're, they're looking to Florida Virtual School to actually run their all remote program. So it's, this is not unknowable. Like it is possible. It is not so difficult. It is difficult because we need to have the political will and the adults kind of have to step up and want to do it. Uh, and, and that's what we're overcoming here is, is pe people feeling that it's hard. The time is here to innovate. We have to get this done for our kids. We're the grownups here. So I had a sort of last area I wanted to ask about, and, and that's sort of fear of COVID in general, and especially as it revolves around schools. Um, so I um, 
am out and about for, for what I do quite a bit, actually, and riding the subway, doing other things. And I maybe have, as the governor often says, I, maybe I'm letting my guard down a little bit. But in this school debate, it seems like teachers are petrified of going into the school buildings in most cases because of the way they're ancient. And, and I think, Carrie, you were mentioning this. Uh, conditions may not be all that great. But there's a lot of fear. But there's even been fear to, to go in and be in the classroom alone um, by some teachers if they were doing remote learning from the classroom, uh, that they would, that, that could be dangerous and they, that may not be worth doing. Are we too afraid of COVID? Is that sort of paralyzing our, our options here? Because Jack, maybe you can start on this because even some of your thoughts about what could be done involve getting students distancing, maybe wearing masks, but still getting together. Do you think other parents, teachers would go along with that approach? You know, it's interesting because I, I talk to people every day and, you know, some people are, you know, have to go to work and they're seeing multiple people. They're in some sort of service industry job. My, my wife is a physician, so she sees, she sees sick people every day. Um, and other people tell me that they've gotten everything delivered to their house and they haven't left the home in like four months. So there's a huge range and it's really hard to... Uh, so say someone is being too cautious or too risky because you don't know what their physical health is. And as Carrie said, people have different sort of family situations and, and there may be older folks in the home or, or that, that people are caretaking. Um, I, I mean, I, I personally like, as someone with a physician in our household, um, we have some friends who want to socialize with us, but I know that um, they take care of their grandmother and, I'm actually more scared of giving them COVID than getting it myself. I mean, but, but that's, I guess it's kind of a personal choice for everyone. I don't un understand everyone's decisions, but that's because I don't know everyone's situation. For me, this is where the politics comes into it. You know, we, we're throwing science out the window. You don't get COVID from being in an empty classroom. You get it from being too close to people and not socially distancing and the transfer of a virus. Uh, I actually would support having educators in classrooms where they can um, socially distance and be responsible and make sure that they're collaborating with other educators who are doing similar work. And frankly, there's some accountability to make sure that education is actually being delivered um, because I have a lot of questions around that. I think there's gotta be some accountability. Too many parents have seen, like myself, teachers that just were not present or were only present you know, twice a week for 45 minutes. What is happening? How are our kids actually getting that, that time spent on learning delivered if the educators are not present, if remote learning is not happening? So the science you know, does not back up the idea that just by virtue of being in an empty classroom, you're putting yourself in jeopardy of getting COVID. COVID. And frankly, when it comes to the transfer of COVID and, and why I'm concerned about kids being in schools is because I have three little boys and I, I know how they act. They're on top of each other. They're, they, like, it's like some of these guys that they don't even realize, like, it's, it's like they've never met kids before. My kids are all over each other. 
I worry about COVID transfer because they're not going to socially distance. They're not going to keep masks on. Educators are. They're going to socially distance. And frankly, the buildings are not going to be populated. I'd like to see them interacting with their colleagues, interacting with the principals, so that we are all on the same page when it comes to remote learning and what we're, we're actually doing is worth doing. Yeah. And Jack, uh, last question for the two of you. In your Think Outside the Box proposal, Walk, walk us through it briefly about, you were talking about maybe having, um, is it two days? Like if, if it's, you're teaching math, how much time, I guess what I'm trying to get is how much time would a student be listening to or interacting with a teacher? Right. Well, so I don't, I don't know about specific hour, but, but, but imagine that um, on a Monday you would, you would get an hour and a half with a math teacher. They would explain the concept go through some sample problems, and then you'd be left with a packet that you could work on on Tuesday and, and, and maybe have an office hour later in the day on Tuesday where you could, so you could talk to the teacher about what you're having trouble with. And then, you know, I think that for humanities, it's slightly different where maybe you, you read three chapters of a novel on the Monday on your own, and then on Tuesday you get together and talk about it. And, you know, part of my, my crazy proposal was that that opens up I was going to do Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and open up Wednesday for just the super creative, you know, come to campus or, you know, meet somewhere downtown, you know, take, walk through and, and talk about the history of our town, talk about architectural styles, take an art class to uh, a garden and, and sketch trees. You know, there's so many different things that we could be doing if we sort of rethink, if, if we're not trying to make a bad copy of, of the status quo, but instead, as Carrie said, be innovative and make a whole new thing. And, and I think I said to my piece, like, if it crashes and burns, the worst thing that can happen is our high school students will have something to write their college essays about. So Carrie, you, in your article, you mentioned that the current discussion is maybe two hours of direct student interaction a week which seemed astonishing to me that it would be that little. Is, is that still what you're hearing? Uh, yes. And frankly, that's all I have to go on is kind of rumor and conjecture because we don't have the plans. Again, it, we are into September. It's two weeks away from the start of school and I don't know what to expect. And the idea that like, frankly, I have to make a decision between hybrid and remote without even knowing what hybrid or remote actually means is crazy. <laughs> But I will tell you this, time spent on learning and structured learning time are regulated by statute. And we have a constitutional amendment in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, for access to a high quality education. Those are actionable and we're going to be holding these districts and the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education accountable for these statutes, for these requirements. You know, these things were not waived because we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's been no changes to it. So all of these MOUs and that have been negotiated between districts and unions around how much time they want to engage in remote learning, it's all subject to whether or not it's fulfilling these statutes right now. That's going to be actionable. There are, are parents across the, the Commonwealth that are looking very critically at whether or not they're getting what they deserve. And if we're not, we'll see you in court. Well, on that note, 
We'll close. Kerry Rodriguez and Jack Chang, thank you very much for joining us today. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thanks. Thanks for having us.